Welcome to Fireside Financial. Together, Joe Curry and Regan Schiller offer and discuss insights and advice on all aspects of retirement planning. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, sit back and join us by the fireside as we explore all the topics related to planning for your retirement. Hey, Joe, how's it going today? It's going great, Regan. Good to see you again and happy to be back on the show. Yeah, me too. I've been having a lot of fun with this, going back and forth with you and sharing ideas and also letting our listeners learn from our experiences. Yeah, I think it's great because we're kind of brainstorming topics ahead of time and, you know, what do you do, what do I do, and kind of learn a little bit from each other and then share the best of both worlds with our audience. So it's perfect. And today is no different. That being said, I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce one of the topics we're going to go through today because it was your idea. Sure, no problem. So one of the things that we're going to be focusing on a little bit in our client meetings this fall is where some clients, it will be advantageous for them to be taking some excess withdrawals out of their RIF, their registered retirement income funds, or in some cases, it's not RRSP, but basically those retirement accounts that clients will have to pay tax on when they take the money out of. And we're talking about doing that even if they don't need to use the money. And so why might we want to do that? That's really the topic of today. And when does it make sense to take excess money from your RIF? And there's many good reasons. Um, One obvious reason would be if you're drawing excess amounts out of your RIF accounts, and if you're using that capital for things like your tax-free savings account deposits. I think you had mentioned that's one of your strategies that you would look at for clients. For sure. So in the U.S., they have something called Roth conversions, where they have a lot more flexibility around this. But in Canada, we have the tax-free savings account, which is going to be tax-free growth. So no matter what that grows to, and the big piece here is if you pass away, there's no tax on that. But anything mm-hmm. that's left in your RIF when you pass away is going to be fully taxable as income, right? Mm-hmm. So RSPs, when we're still working and saving and we're in our highest income earning years, it makes sense to get those deductions and get some tax deferred growth because we've paid no tax while it's in there. That all makes sense. But at a certain point, we want to start to manage the taxes that we're, we're paying and we, wherever we can get money into tax-free accounts as opposed to tax deferred. It's going, mm-hmm. to be, it's going to be helpful. So that was one of the things we were both talking about doing with our yeah. clients. Yeah, and that's more so looking at the lifetime tax payable versus the year's tax payable, right? Like how much did you save that year? But by deferring the RIF income, if you will, it just adds to that, that account that's going to be fully taxable when you take that money out. So maybe it makes more sense to take more a little more out earlier, sheltered in a tax or savings account, which has obviously benefits from an estate planning perspective as well as if there was future withdrawals that you needed to take out for lump sum purchases, taking it from the tax-free savings account is not going to affect any of your other sources of income and potentially could save you from OAS clawback. Yeah, and that could be a couple of things. It might be some big feature expense that we know is going to be coming up. So mm-hmm. we don't want to have to take all that money out of a retirement account at once and pay a big mm-hmm. tax bill. Or it might be something that we don't know is coming. Right. So mm-hmm. if, if we are planning for it, we could be taking excess each year. So we're not going to, into too high of a tax bracket and setting that aside into a non-registered account or tax-free savings account if they're not um, fully utilized. Or maybe, again, like I said, we don't know what's coming down the road. And so we want to be doing that anyway if we're already in a, a lower tax bracket. So mm-hmm. we can take advantage of that lower tax bracket and be getting money into the more, we'll call it retirement tax-favorable accounts. So if something comes up unexpected, we're not forced to take a big lump sum out of our retirement yeah. accounts, pay a bunch of tax before we can pay that unexpected expense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, recently I dealt with, so they're new clients. The wife is about two years away from 
having to convert her RRSP. And she's got uh, a sizable non-registered portfolio, a sizable registered portfolio, and maxed out on her TFSA contributions. And obviously there's pension income and all that kind of stuff as well. But for her, I wanted to see if it made sense to take more from her RSP because of what she's doing right now, I should back up there. She's drawing her monthly income comes from her non-registered account. Right. right. So I looked at if she did less of that and started her RIF two years sooner, take a little bit more out and then just dollar cost average into her tax free savings account to keep her at the limit. It made more sense to defer to age 71 for her RIF withdrawals and then at that time stop the withdrawals from the non-registered account. The other thing that listeners might want to pay attention to if they're in this situation. So let's say you are a few years from converting your RIF and you had a non-registered portfolio that had a lot of capital gains already attached to it. So unrealized capital gains. And that was the case with this lady that I'm mentioning. And I wanted to make some portfolio adjustments, but I wanted to see what the effects would be from a tax liability. Well, it's definitely affect her tax paid this year or next year. But if she waits till age 71, it was a dramatic impact on the taxes that would be paid. So it made more sense to rebalance her portfolio now versus waiting till 71. Sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of like unique scenarios, right? So the podcast, I love it because we can give a lot of good information, but I mean, every situation is going to be a little bit unique on what makes sense. And one mm-hmm. of the times where I find it doesn't make a lot of sense to be taking too much money out too quickly is for people who, you know, when we look at their plan and we're like, kind of, here's the max you could be spending on an annual basis. And mm-hmm. they're spending right up to that max. And mm-hmm. those scenarios we're probably not going to have a big amount left in the RIF anyway. So we're less worried about that tax bite on the other. And we're more worried about continuing to get those tax deferred growth. So that's one of the scenarios where I find that taking out money early doesn't actually make a lot of sense or doesn't help as far as lifetime taxes or what they're able to spend throughout their lifetime. Yeah, it's always case by case. It's surprising how how the variances can make a a big difference on the recommendations and the outcomes of the plans. For sure. I don't know if we talked about the sequence of risk returns, if you will, or the sequence of returns. I don't think we've spoken too much about that, but I thought it kind of ties in nicely to sort of what we're talking about here. I'm talking about the world of averages. So when we look at financial calculations, if you looked at time value calculations, it would say, well, if you had $100,000 worth of capital today and we look forward the next 35 years, and let's say you had a 5% constant rate of return and you took out $600 a month. Right. Theory would suggest that that 100,000 should last you till about age 89. But there's a fundamental flaw in that calculation. Yeah, exactly. So when you're saving money and not taking money out, that usually, you know, that works out pretty well. But what happens is the market doesn't just go in a straight line, right? So we might get that average return, as you mentioned. But if we get some bad years early on in retirement and we're forced to be taking and withdrawing capital out of Mm -hmm. our accounts, so digging into that principle, then all of a sudden, you know, a few years into retirement, we have a lot less in those accounts. So there's a lot less to get those later on higher return years that should average yeah. the expected returns. Yeah, absolutely. And if I do a quick example here, so I'll look at a three-year average and let's assume a 5% is what the average was over those three years. The first year, the client received a 5% rate of return. The second year, negative 15. And the third year, 25%, hypothetically, of course. Yep. Still, that averages out at 5% per year. If we looked at that, or if we looked at the opposite sequence, so if we looked at that one, the sequence of returns, which showed now that 100,000 now would only last you till age 83. Okay. Yeah. So now if you go the opposite way, so you got 5% and then 25 and then negative 15, you still averaged five. Okay. Yep. But those sequence of returns, now that shows that 100,000 
lasting till age 87. Yeah. So how you receive your returns does have an impact on your withdrawal strategies. So Regan, what are some ways that you try to address that with your clients? No December 31st statement ever looks exactly the same as the other one, yep. right? So what I would look at is what is the portfolio's actual standard deviation and what is its historical returns? For the listeners who don't know what standard deviation means, basically it's a risk measurement on your portfolio, somewhat of an all-in risk measurement that just gives you the variances in your returns that you should expect. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way of putting it, kind of the, the range of outcomes for any yeah, given year. Exactly. So let's say the portfolio's 10-year history was 6% and it had a standard deviation of 9. I'd probably use a 5.5 return assumption and a 12 okay. or 13% standard deviation in the settings of the software. So just to be more conservative. And then just start doing their various different withdrawal strategies that we could look at from whatever bucket we would take it from and whatever amounts those might be. And then just seeing where their optimal mix is. If we have those assumptions in there and somewhat stress testing the plan, and if its retirement score comes out at 125%, I'd feel comfortable giving those recommendations to go into retirement. Perfect. Yeah. And yourself? We actually use a guardrail strategy, which is a dynamic withdrawal strategy. At the end of the day, what it's doing is it's taking a lot of that data you just talked about and kind of looking over long periods of, of history returns. It gives us some parameters. Uh, so we know what our starting point is, how much based on what the portfolio and the amount of risk the client's willing to take. So once we kind of dial in that portfolio, we create these parameters where we know if the client's portfolio stays between the guardrails, so mm -hmm. there's a kind of upper and a lower level, then they continue to take out same amount of monthly income year over year. And we can mm -hmm. bump that up with inflation. But if they hit the lower guardrail, we need to tighten our belt, so to speak. Mm -hmm. All right. And so this is kind of, um, it's from the uh, Journal of Financial Planning in the in the States. I was introduced to it by Matthew Jarvis. Guyton and Klinger are kind of the ones behind it. So one was like a computer scientist, one was a financial planner. So they put all this together. But basically it's just the way we, the reason we really like it is it gives clients a visual so they can see if they hit the lower guardrail, that they know when they need to, mm -hmm. like I say, tighten their belt, so to speak. The flip side yep. of that is, though, if they get a good sequence of returns that we were talking about earlier, so if those good returns come early on, when we have those conservative assumptions that we build into a lot of plans, what happens is when we get good sequence of returns early on is people end up with way more money than they started, right? right. If, if we don't adjust. So the upper guardrail is basically saying, look, there's enough buffer here that we can actually increase the amount that you're spending on an right. annual basis. So yeah. it's a good visual of helping the clients kind of see exactly where they are, how close they are to having to make an adjustment or being able to spend more money. Yeah. And it also answers the question of what if I take this lump sum out, what's yeah. going to happen to, you know, how much I can spend within my portfolio. Right. So, so there's other tools we can use, but that's kind of the, the main one we like to use when we're, you know, talking specifically about our, our portfolio. Yeah. It's a simple visual of upper, lower limits, keeps a retirement plan simple from a client's perspective as far as what they can and, and maybe shouldn't do. What other reasons would you have for taking your RIF income earlier? Yeah, so one is, I think we've talked about this in the past, Regan, where we want to maybe have the client defer their old age security and maybe their CPP. Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, that's going to give them a lot more lifetime guaranteed income. Mm -hmm. There's a pretty substantial difference for someone who's you know fully contributed, especially in the CPP, uh, whether they take it early at 65 or at age 70. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, we might want to defer that. But now all of a sudden, all that guaranteed income we might otherwise have at, say, age 65, we don't have. So we're probably in a much lower tax bracket. And so we might want to take advantage of that and be taking excess 
money out of our risk during that period before we have all those, those other income sources kick in and, and bump up our taxable income. Yeah. Doing that too could preserve your OAS if you're in that situation. I find that more and more that deferring the uh, CPP payments and then taking more out of the RIF earlier on has just overall from a plan perspective and also a net worth perspective long term has been showing up as a positive thing uh, for those factors for most cases. Yeah, there's some factors obviously to consider in unique situations, but in a lot of scenarios, it's interesting what that does for the I guess net worth, as you said, for the estate, like later on. And actually, mm -hmm. even though it's kind of a little bit counterintuitive because you're spending a lot more money of the portfolio in the early years, mm -hmm. but you don't need as much on the, in the later years. Yeah. I guess the flip side of that is if you want to spend it, it's there. Yeah. Um, but if people are just, you know, if they have specific goals they're meeting, they don't, because you know, a lot of people aren't spending as much as they could. Right. Which I don't know. I'm sure you're probably the same as me on this, but a lot of clients were trying to get them to spend more money. Yeah. <laughs> right. Very seldom it's the other way around, actually. Yeah. Because that's one thing that can lead to retirement disaster, if you will, if you start spending way more than what you were accounting for. There's definitely a balance there. And I think we talked about that in a, a past episode of, you know, why we might want to do a dress rehearsal on our spending to make sure mm -hmm. that our spending is what we think it is before we get to retirement. So we're not spending a lot more. Let's uh, touch upon that. Because I've just recently went through that with a client here yesterday, actually. He's three weeks retired kind of thing. So it's, you know, getting more intimate with the budget, even though we've talked about it lots and planned around it. But right now, I would say they're in that phase where it's kind of, I don't want to say critical, but it's important to to be in touch with your budget, not to say that you have to feel like you're on a budget, but let's just be, let's make sure we're in sync with the budget. So we did a detailed breakout and they're going to kind of follow the assumptions that we have in the plan for the next few months to see if they're, um, the assumptions under expenses, to see if they're following that. And you know, that, that's the one area where if you're not being honest with yourself, I think you could really throw your retirement plan off the rails. Yeah, it's a, a huge risk to just assume you know what you're spending without actually taking a deeper dive. This is especially true for high income earners, right? Like a lot of people where they're making a lot of money while they're working, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever it is, they have a good size retirement account. Mm -hmm. So they think, you know, when I'm not working and I really, you know, my bills for my house and stuff, they're like three grand a month. I really don't need that much money. Yeah. And then they realize all the one-offs they have every month throughout their normal yeah. year, and which is not going to change when you get to retirement. In fact, there might be more because every day is Saturday now, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very true. It's, um, it's a tricky one. I've had it before where a client retired early, not through our advice, but he was afraid that he, a lot of his friends are passing away early. And he was afraid that would be him. So he didn't want to take that chance kind of thing. So he retired a bit early, but it was right on the line. Like you're, says that you can do it, but I would suggest that it's, um, you're, you're kind of, you're walking a tight line, right? A few of the things in his plan didn't work out as far as like how much he would get for his house when he sells, sells it and when it would sell and a few other th factors that came into play there, but kind of just really spent a lot of money in the earlier years of retirement. And I was warning him just about every meeting to you know, this is getting uh, to be pretty tight. And eventually he did have to go back to work, unfortunately, but um, each to their own, right? Yeah. And I guess that's something if you're going to do that early and you're okay with going back to work, knowing then, about it and planning yeah. for it, then sure, yeah. as, as long as you're able to. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you're able to, but, um, but yeah, everyone's situation is much different. Exactly. What do you want to uh, cover off next? I think we hit a, a lot of good points there. Maybe we wrap this one up. Yeah, I think we covered quite a bit of information here for our listeners uh, today. And the feedback I've been getting too from listeners is sometimes the shorter podcasts that are more of like good information in there, they seem to appreciate a little bit more. Yeah, I know a lot of people that it's the commute 
Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we're at work now, so yeah, <laughs> we'll sign off. All right, Kate. Well, thanks for joining us here today, folks. Take care, everyone. Investment services are provided through Matthews & Associates Investments of Aligned Capital Partners Incorporated and approved trade name of Aligned Capital Partners Inc. ACPI. Only investment-related products and services are offered through ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI and covered by the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Tax planning, financial planning, and insurance services are provided through Matthews & Associates. Matthews & Associates is an independent company separate and distinct from ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI. Matthews & Associates are not licensed tax professionals, and you should consult with your tax advisor before acting on any recommendations. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. Be sure to tune back in for the next episode. And until then, we're here to help you simplify and succeed in your retirement planning.